photography has this amazing way of offering you a language for the invisible. From Stockholm Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn, this is The LPV Show, a weekly discussion from the world of photography and photo books. Here is your host, Brian Formals. And we're here with Shannon Tagers. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're, uh, I, I kind of want to give a, a warning to our audience. Ooh. Because this could get spooky, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I would I, love it if it got spooky. I do. I, I'm just saying we might go. We might go. We might go off the rails on this one a little bit. I don't know where it's going to go. <laughs> just but. imagine the fog machine is going full blast. <laughs> I, yes, I'm all about uh, bringing mystery into the the world. Yeah, we like that. <laughs> so I want to. I kind of how I was going through your website and digging into everything and you know your, your your projects and you got a lot of projects but your main project is on um essentially it's on spiritualism right and it's yes. kind of this like multi-part yes. project that covers different aspects of it and it's it's very interesting i mean even looking at it on your website i got the sense of like she's thinking of this very much as like a book. Like you kind of feel it like that way with the chapters and the different aspects of it. Is that something, I mean, I guess maybe I don't want to get ahead of myself, but like the way you lay it out on the website, is it kind of like to give that sense of more of a book feel to it? Um, that's what I was trying to do. And actually there's a major part of the work that is not on my site yet. Mm -hmm. And it's because this is a project I've been working on for like 15 years. And it took me a really long time to wrap my brain around this subject matter. Mm -hmm. And uh, with anything, I mean, I started out as a photojournalist, but like I always had such a deep respect and almost love for everybody I've ever photographed mm -hmm. or I've ever had that interaction with. Meaning like there's such a, it's such an intimate process when somebody really lets you photograph them mm -hmm. that, um, I'm so thankful for him that I like I never wanted to disrespect the topic. And when I first tackled it, I didn't understand anything about this religion. But there's also this element of high strangeness and absurdity and fun and um, complexity and also scariness that's um, kind of difficult to put all together. And so the, the, the part that I've actually held back from my website is I think the, the scariest section, mm -hmm. which, um, is the pictures I'm actually most interested and excited about, wow. <laughs> but I just feel that that was, Wait, a, so we're not going to get a big reveal here. Well, no, I mean, I will get a big okay. reveal because I'll tell, I'll, okay, I'll tell <laughs> you about them, but a lot of them are not on my website mm -hmm. because I, I still struggle, even though I, I designed the site mm -hmm. to be able to give more text uh, presence uh -huh. and more explanation, but I still have not figured a way to put it on the web. And the book process is actually something I'm working on right now. Nice. So you're working on a book dummy of it? Yes. Nice. Yes. Excellent. I'm building a Blad. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I want to, and I think this is kind of key to give a little bit of context, because I think it is very cool how... Yeah, you do like the text kind of does bring you into it. And like that was when I was looking at it last night, I was like, oh, this like the storytelling really kind of comes through. And obviously in this show, we talk a lot about the relationship between text and photographs and something. I think it's, it mixes very well. But the one that really 
and I think this is a good place to kind of start or get us going, was um, the piece on Lil- Lilydale. When he said, in 2001, I began photographing where my grandfather's message was received, Lilydale, New York, the world's largest spiritualist community. I expected to spend one summer figuring out the tricks of the spiritualist trade. Instead, I peered into something truly mysterious. I stumbled upon a hidden world, an abandoned system with a storied history that became a resource and an inspiration for my own photographic theory and practice. So let's back up, because we say... Your grandfather, you received a message about your grandfather. What is that all about? What did you, what, well, tell us uh, that story. What happened was, is I, so I'm from Buffalo, New York, mm-hmm. which is in Western New York State. And so I grew up um, an hour away from Lilydale, which is this very strange and wonderful little town. It's sort of like walking into a time warp. It's really, they've really kept Victoriana alive in a way that's very, um, unbelievable. And it's a town full of mediums. And I grew up as a Catholic and my cousins would go to Lilydale in the summers for readings. And um, my uncle, who was a bishop in the Catholic church, said, yes, you can go for readings, but you just can't believe that more than uh, what the church says. Meaning like Catholicism doesn't negate what spiritualism says, which is that there's continuity of life. Uh, the soul survives death. And so my cousin went to Lilydale, and I was 16. You know, she was she's older than me. I mean, she I think she might be 10 years older than me. And one of the traditions there is they have these uh, benches in the woods, this really old forest. Like some of the oldest trees in New York State are there. It's very peaceful. You go anonymously. You sit on a bench. There'll be a parade of mediums who come up to the it's called inspiration stump. It's like a, a tree stump that uh, it's kind of like the holiest place in spiritualism. And there's all these storied histories about uh, mediums standing up on the stump and getting struck by lightning. And like, there's a lot of lore about the, the, the oh. space. But anyway, my cousin was there and a medium chose her and said, um, there's a man here and he wants you to know how he really died. And she told him, or she told my cousin what he said, and it ended up being true. It ended up being this strange family secret that, like, my father had not even told my mother. And it happened in, like, the uh, mid to late 60s. So it's not something that... I know the common view of spiritualists or mediums or television mediums is that they research you and that uh, it's all a scam. And they're is an element of that in the history for sure. But for the most part, if you're going to go to a spiritual situation or church, you're going to find people who are genuinely believing in what they're doing. And um, so, but when that happened, I was 16 years old and I was actually at that time in my first photography class. And I thought, oh, that's so strange. How could somebody possibly know such a thing? Like, how could she know it? And it stuck with me. And I didn't begin the project until almost 10 years later, but it always stayed with me, that mystery. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That sense of like true. I mean, you know, because I remember my father was super upset about, like our family was really, there was a very real uh, wave of emotion Hmm. from this event. Hmm. So. And they did, was there any, I mean, did you try to find out how would she possibly know that? Did anyone get like that? Or like, I mean, like to kind of figure out if like this is a scam, what does she know? Like, no, or they I, just kind of accepted it. I, if I'm going to, I can't speak directly for my family members, mm-hmm. but I'm going to take 
the position that I think is correct, which mm-hmm. is that as Catholics, they just accepted this mm. as a message. Mm. Mm. And that, uh, and actually as a, a way that they actually touched in with my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. So that the, that's the catalyst for the project. Now, when did you actually start like, okay, this is something I have to start. I have to integrate photography into this. So, How did that calling kind of come about? So, you know, I mean, the place, the first time I ever went there, I just was breathless because it's such a strange experience going there because you really do literally feel like you're walking into a time warp. And I tried several times to connect there or photograph there and it just never worked. And then finally I'm work- I was working as a photojournalist and then I got into this position where I was a public relations photographer at a university. And as much as that job really helped me learn a lot of technical stuff, it really just didn't feed me uh, intellectually. And I was looking for something to do in my spare time. And I lived in Rochester. So it was like, it was like a place I could go and explore and work this other side of my brain and my, my and skills. And I just thought I'd spend a summer there photographing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it ended up being a much more complicated experience. Well, that's funny how that, I think that works for a lot of photographers. They, they get that initial itch on something. Oh, maybe I'll just kind of do it. And then you end up you know, the floodgates just kind of open and like the deeper you get into it, it's like you have to keep going. I personally haven't felt that way, like where it's like this kind of epic project. And we talk about this a lot too on shows, like, you know, some people do kind of like really short projects and other people do these really long epic projects. And you're definitely on 15 years now as you're on the epic scale. So how, you know, when, when did you start like taking the different pieces of the puzzle and like I'm going to investigate different aspects of this? Well, I photographed pretty intensely for about five years, and I got I got the work published. I mean, it was published in Blind Spot, mm-hmm. like when the original editor was still editing that uh, Kim Zorn Caputo, um, who was a big champion of that work, like mm-hmm. very early on, which was really special um, because she passed away shortly after. Um, and I think I, you know, Newsweek used a picture. Um, you know, it came here and there. I think American Heritage did a little piece, but it's still, I knew that at that point, after five years, after even five years, I knew I was like not even really getting the nitty gritty or the interesting stuff. And I moved to New York and I concentrated on editorial photography and also building other portfolios. And I I also got frustrated with the subject matter. I felt stuck like... I felt the tension between either or. Is this real or is this false? And I really felt so frustrated. And because, to be honest, you'll go 10 times and go, God, you know, this is, there is nothing here. And then maybe one day you go and have one of the craziest experiences of your life. And it's a very confusing interplay. Hmm. And so I couldn't make sense of that. And I got like really frustrated and I'm like, why am I even doing this? So I kind of just dropped it for almost five years, to be honest. Like, I mean, I worked on other things. I did a project about voodoo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I did this like, uh, experimental portrait, uh, photography, Mm -hmm. uh, um, thing which Tom actually helped me mm-hmm. on. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he posed for me and mm-hmm. and also I started to get hired in that style mm-hmm. and but I started 
I started doing a lot of reading and research and it inspired me to pick the project back mm-hmm. up. So in 2011, I picked the mm-hmm. project back up. And is that when, so speaking of the, the portraits and me and Tom were talking about this a little bit before, how you do have come back from this photojournalism background, kind of straight photography and like, you know, but on these portraits, it's like you're, you, you want, you know, slow shutter or whatever, you're doing something that adds the movement or adds some sort of experimentation or... Like I told Tom, it's like you're trying to cultivate the mistakes. You want like mm-hmm. the the yes. erroneous stuff to come up. Like you're intentionally going for that. Is it? Did you like start to incorporate? When did you start incorporating that into mm-hmm. this project? Well, I mean, because you kind of you discovered the technique and you're into it, and then like you you started applying it to the project. Is that kind of how? Well, it I, it's basically mm-hmm. the spiritualist experience mm-hmm. and project and then research led me to that project. And one of the main things and one of the books that I brought is that what the, what the spiritualist taught me before, I, I brought a book about a show that mm-hmm. was that was at the Met in 2005 called mm-hmm. The Perfect Medium, Occult and Art. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went to RIT, which is a big photo school. Mm-hmm. And we did photo history, trust me. Like we did everything you can do as far as like the lineage and there's like you explore photography in almost every area. And I had never seen the spiritualist pictures, like the spirit photography, pictures of mediums, people who are trying to photograph the invisible, serious scientists who are trying to photograph the invisible. This has been written out of the official history. And the fact of the matter is is that when photography happened, when it came about, everybody wanted to play with it in in a spiritualist way, or you know, in a way to explore the invisible. I should put it like that. Mm-hmm. And actually, spiritualism was an incredibly popular movement, and it happened. I think like literally nine, like around like nine years after mm-hmm. photography was discovered. Mm-hmm. And one of those strange synchronicities I found is where the the first public seances in the world were held in Rochester, New York, a half mile down the street from Kodak headquarters. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So yeah. there's like a lot of connections there. Yeah. And um, this has just been written out. And these, and granted, some of these images are not exciting. Or I mean, they're exciting if you know what people were trying to do, but it, it's more about the, the, the thought process and what they represent and the conceptual... Um, inspiration for these images. And um, so learning about that history really inspired me to play with the medium because a lot of those images, a lot of the early images, you can read multiple ways. The people who are doing them were finding, you know, they're trying to photograph the human aura and then they're putting a hand into chemistry on photographic material and they're getting patterns and then they're they're doing things to manipulate that and they're getting results that they interpret as effective. Mm-hmm. And then people learn more about the science of the photographic process and they say, no, that's just temperature, that's just heat, that's just um, other things. But there's also ones where there are clear synchronicities into what they're trying to show and what acts the patterns that come out. So it basically was based on the fact of I got really inspired and and 
within it's why I picked up the spiritualism project back up was just like, I'm going to be the worst photographer ever. I'm going to try to break down the process as much as possible where I came from a point where I moved to New York and was trying to be the most professional photographer I'd ever been. And I found that not very rewarding and I also wasn't that great at it. So, I, but also it's, it's, there's a freedom in it and so much like bringing play and experimentation and, I realized that photography has this amazing way of offering you a language for the invisible. Mm-hmm. Like, and even the most pragmatic materialist photographer mm-hmm. will talk about the mystery of photography mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. it's a process you can't control. There's some real mystery there. There's some real magic. And I'm not just talking about to the process. I mean, mm-hmm. I think about street photography in the same way. Hmm. where we're talking about like synchronicities right, and right. energy and what you're looking like mm-hmm. what's going on in your mind and what's going on in the mm-hmm. people you're photographing's mind and mm-hmm. and also like things that just happen like the sun will suddenly come out mm-hmm. or you know a car will go by really fast or you yeah. know all of absolutely, those absolutely. things that I think street photography beautifully shows this other reality mm-hmm. to us and I think that's very metaphysical even though you would never no. Classifies. Oh yeah, I mean, I think a lot of like the real gung ho street photographers. I think of my friend Blake Andrews, who's all he's kind of a similar way in street photography. Where he's like, it's all about cultivating the mistakes and mm-hmm. cultivating the stuff that he didn't see. Like they, it was all on his intuition. And what I was kind of thinking when you're saying that is that even when I, if I go out and I'm a landscape photographer, which is very kind of like cut and dry, right? You mean you line it up and you make the photo, and a lot of times the best photos that I, when I get the film back are the ones that like, I can't remember, like where I wasn't, it was somehow I just took the picture and I wasn't, it wasn't there where I was thinking to line it up and do all these things. And then that one just appeared and I was like, well, where did it come from? Cause I can't, I normally have a pretty good memory about my walk and doing something like, where did this, I don't remember this one. Or even the ones where like the accidents come in through the film because yeah. film just is inherently like, an accident prone, you know, medium, I think. So I think there's definitely like when you say there is always that mystery and that magic to it, I think like trying every photographer trying to be deeply in tune with that is like there's it's 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 relevant to us all. Yeah. And I think that's what we're all going for. So yes. it seems like you really kind of made a laser beam to that and we're like, this is what I got to hold on to. This is who I am, you know. I really- wanted to take it as far as I could. Yeah. <laughs> Which I I really have I mean, one time I was on a photo shoot for a magazine and I had gotten hired for my portrait style and the editor showed up on the shoot and I was like, I was just working on the lighting. And meanwhile, I have these two women sitting in a dark bathroom with the door like just partially open. <laughs> and I'm, I'm doing three second exposures. Mm-hmm. And when she said, you're working on, when I'm working on the lighting, she laughed and like walked out. <laughs> yeah. Like there's no lighting in this shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and also, too, get to get back to the street photography thing. Like, I, I look at the Gary Winogram book, like that he did on his Guggenheim grant. I think it's the 1960, 1964. Yeah. And just to think about one person finding all those pictures in one year. And I think about it's almost like hunting or energy, yeah, or intuition or yeah. like being able to smell situations yeah. or something, some heightened 
some some heightened sense or playing on your senses either in hyper mode or accessing yeah, another yeah. sense. Or- I think you'll like this. And we talked about it. <laughs> definitely. About it. I, in the very first episode of the season, when we were talking about Hinius, is like, when we were talking with Hinchua, and I was like, I'm working on this thing. It's like, I don't know how to describe it. I normally work on the weekends and like I build up to it. It's like, I'm going to go out and I get on a train. I go to Long Island or I go to Queens and like, I'm going to go out for three and a half hours to photograph. This is what I'm doing. And part of that process is like, I'm going to get completely lost. I need that derangement of not knowing where I am. And I, I, we could, I wish we could like link back to it. Maybe, (laughs) but it was something along the lines. Like, I don't know what it is, but my perception Something about it changes where I'm going. I feel like I'm entering into a different quantum dimension or something. I yeah. don't know what it is, but I know I'm not in the same reality that I, I was before I, I, I entered that three-hour period. And I, I still, at this point, I can't describe it because I've never had like people out there walking with me or being with me. But I know that I'm not, I'm somewhere different. I'm in a different reality, whether it's just my senses and my perception and maybe like that focus or something or other chemicals, I think or something maybe like do it, but there's something to that. When you enter into that state of like focused perception that I feel you're going somewhere else. I don't know. So well, <laughs> I, I definitely can kind of like sense that, you know, I would interpret what you're saying as when you go out to photograph, it's a ritual for you. And there's a reason mm-hmm. for since human beings, you know, started socializing that we've had ritual. It's to change a psychological space, to um, transition between two states, to get to a place of mystery. Like that in between, you know, um, when you leave your house and you're um, Brian who got off of work and then you go to this place and you're Brian the artist. Exactly, and, yeah. And then you, you, know, you come back to that, mm-hmm. the other. So it's being in between, yeah. So it's, um, it's a ritual. And I think the more, also too, I just was, uh, I just did an event with um, Janika Stuckey. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but he just, he just had a poetry book published by um, Jack White's new imprint. He's publishing books now from the, the guy from the White Stripes. Hmm. And um, he did a performance and he was describing how um, his writing totally changed. Or he was sharing with the audience how his writing totally changed when he really looked at it as a ritual. Like he found a different voice where he would put the lights a certain way and do like draw a shot and put black pepper in it and make it at the same time of night and burn something that smelled, you know, like this, he discovered that after wit, after he started that process, he had a different voice that was coming out. Absolutely. I 110 million degrees kind of agree because like it didn't really happen to me until I started my Long Island project where I was like, listen, I got to get out of New York. And I'm like, here's a way, take a train and it's literally going to take me out of here. And this is something that's like, I'm going on this little journey. And like after all that, and I even know it's like, I know absolutely like these pictures are completely different even though they're mm-hmm. similar kind of vein but I was shooting in black and white too so uh, even changing the aesthetic 
I, I just knew like, yeah, like when I fully embrace like the ritual of the walk, because walking is such a big part of what we do as well too. And walking has a long history of like the ritualistic aspects of walking. I mean, even down yeah. to the Zen Buddhists who use mm-hmm. it to kind of like get mm-hmm. into the state. Like once you start, I started putting all of those things together, I was like, yes, this is like, this is a, this is a religious thing. And the fact that I'm often doing it on a Sunday or on the weekend, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Yes, it's yes. like, there's numb any difference between me and those people that are going to church and kind of like trying to summons, you know? So I, you know, I think like embracing that and like saying like, that's a big part of the process is important. So I guess I want to kind of like, obviously you're getting into that space too. Well, how about like, and I know sometimes we get bogged down in the technical kind of stuff, but what about like messing with using the infrared filters and, and all those kind of parts of the real nitty gritty photography? How did you kind of like, you know, you embrace that or what is that, that part of it that you think brings out something more in the subject? You know what I mean? Like, cause you could, you know, I guess just enter do long exposures or whatever, but it seems like you're trying to really go to the, the nth degree with it. Well, it started when I had several meaningful accidents with my camera. When I began the spiritualist project, I was trying to shoot very straight I was trying to do something very straightforward. And I had a few moments where the process kind of threw me a ball. And I ignored them for a number of years. And then when I was trying to understand the subject better, I went back to these accidents and and thought, there's something here. Like there's a way to communicate what's actually happening which is like people are talking about invisible things and having invisible experiences. And the process is saying, I can offer you a way to interpret this. Or that's how I read it. And like one of the first happy accidents I had was I went to the Lilydale Museum and I photographed this woman and she was a volunteer there named Dorothy Priest. And um, she's passed now, but she was so helpful and let me just photograph her around the museum. And I didn't even know what I was trying to say or what I was trying to do. But I got two very strange frames. I was shooting film at the time with a large purple circle right by her shoulder. And it was in the same spot in both frames. And I had never gotten it before. And one was with flash and one was without. And I thought, oh, this is a little weird. It's so funny. So I printed them and I brought them to her. And I said, I made these pictures of you. They're kind of strange. I thought you might enjoy them. And she looked at them very like, still and held them in her hands for a long time and said, oh, that's Bob. <laughs> and meeting her dead husband. And the next week I was in Lilydale and um, she drove by me in this golf cart because they all drive around in these little golf carts. And she's like, that's the girl who photographed Bob in the museum. <laughs> and it was oh, kind of my, oh, but wow. at the time I dismissed it. Mm-hmm. But now I think it's a beautiful synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And I now when I photograph, I try to ask for that or open up to that or, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I had several other synchronicities, which made me realize also too, the, 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 you know, I would leave the shutter open for a long period of time because in seance situations, there's no light and you literally have to make like an eight second exposure at like even pushing your film three stops or I was when I was shooting film. And there was this moment where I took a picture of a woman and everybody in the room was saying, there's a person next to you that looks like you, but it's not you. 
it's like your doppelganger. It, it, maybe it's your grandmother or like you were an ancient priestess in your past life, or, but there, we see this face and I did not see this face. And when I developed my film, I had one of these wonderful, crazy experiences where your stomach drops because the picture of this woman had an exact double face just streaming <sighs> off of her face, like perfectly. And it looked, it was like her, but it wasn't. And I mean, obviously it's from movement. We know as photographers that, uh, in, you know, that the pho photographic process does this. But to me, it was so meaningful because it was this beautiful metaphor that I was not trying to create mm -hmm. that just was given to me. And I was even on a tripod. I wasn't even, I did not move mm -hmm. my camera. So, you know, it was moments like that, that I revisited later that made me think maybe there's something here. There's something to play with. There's, there's something to invoke mm -hmm. like conjuring has, or photography has a conjuring power in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And so all I've, tried to do is to open up to it as much as possible. So I'm not going to let you off the hook there because you said something <laughs> very, very important and I maybe other people caught on, but you said metaphor. Mm -hmm. I mean, are you, and I think this is, maybe you're going to be evasive on this, but do you think what you're doing is working in metaphor or do you think you actually are photographing the spirit? That is a very good question mm -hmm. and I have an answer for that. <laughs> I am... It took me a long time to get to this point too, but I am extremely comfortable in being as ambiguous as possible. I actually love the fact that these pictures could be interpreted multiple ways and that they invite these solid interpretations depending on how you view reality and consciousness or how you view your experience or if you were there or not. Um, I think that's fascinating and interesting and I welcome it and I, it's something I actually seek and mm -hmm. like makes it very exciting. Absolutely. And so, and also too, you have to catch me on a certain day. Sometimes I'll be like, no, I think that, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not a good one, but this one is because yeah. I had this experience, you know, yeah. we all kind of part of, part of what gives meaning to life is us interpreting our own lives. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. like, so uh, I like them to be as open to interpretation mm -hmm. as possible. Yeah, and just being having the, the maybe it's the maturity or the wisdom to say like, you know what, I probably don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't, I maybe never will. So like living on that plane of like multiple kind of realities or perceptions is, yeah, it is it. That is kind of like the thing. We're not going to be able to kind of, it's not, I don't think it's, you know, it's, Less science can come out and really come out and prove it. And I, I think that was something else I was talking about. Like, what about like, you know, the the physicists or the like quantum mechanics that might be able to explain how consciousness could do that? I mean, is that have you ever considered that part of it, where you would go deep into like the scientific aspect of of that, or are you just you want to stay within well, the th spiritualism? That's interesting that you say that because. And, you know, I'm not a quantum physicist and I'm probably going to misspeak, but I, I think I can loosely explain what I'm going to try to say is that, uh, you know, we know in science that the observer affects the experiment, the, just the, the fact of observation. Um, 
or who's observing. And I like to think of that in terms of photography, where if all three of us were here in a room and we all had cameras and we were photographing the same thing, they would be so different. And so I do like to think about that element mm-hmm. in play, mm-hmm. right? Like, like that, you know, unique, that unique kind of thing that you bring, maybe playing yeah, yeah, in scientifically. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if that sounds okay. No, I don't I mean, I think, but I don't know. I absolutely, I mean, I think there's also just a lot to, to understand about consciousness and that, like the idea that we know we literally don't. I mean, the highest minds in the world, the people that have thought about this, you know, physicists and medical, like we literally do not know. You know right. what I mean? It's one of those black holes of our knowledge that we don't know what happens to the consciousness. So like for anyone to dismiss it would be like going against what like the the smartest people that have ever, like we don't know what happens. You know what I mean? So. Right. And thinking about photography as consciousness at play mm-hmm. is something that's, I find incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm. And like when you think of it as it's this weird sandwich of time and space and light and um, intention. And, you know, throughout like throughout ancient, like if you go back to ancient times, the reflection or the mirror image of something was magical. It was a portal. And if you think of a, of a photograph as a mirror image, which mm-hmm. it is, like I like to think of photographs as portals or as they can be. And also, you I mean you can time travel with photography yeah. if you want to be really literal about <laughs> it. Oh yeah. And I mean that you know, I was listening to this. Have you seen this video? I forget. I think it might have been on Hyperallergic about Roger Ballen talking about mm-hmm. like you might yeah, be an might artist. artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas like he he has this quote. I'm going to misquote him. I, we might we'll, share, we'll share the video. We'll share the video. Yeah. Where he says every time you take a picture, you're creating a reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I really do think that that mm-hmm. is true. I think that we because we use photography to oogle surfaces mm-hmm. or to um, freeze beauty that we forget or it's not the, the first association anymore mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. it. And I think people only people who seriously work with the medium mm-hmm. really think about it in this mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Holy smokes. <laughs> I think we're going to take a quick break. I, we ended up down into the quantum rabbit hole, which I have, but we're going to take a quick break. And I think we'll definitely continue because the books, obviously the books that you brought are very influential and connected to what we're talking about. So we'll, when we come back, we'll pick it up. For sure. Okay. Yes. I, yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. So like I said, Michael Jackson's coming at the end. But first, we're going to talk about some awesome photo books. Great. And these, I mean, I really need to find a new stuff. <laughs> I just got to stop. I got to stop talking. Every single time I say, oh, these are the most amazing books we've ever seen. It's the reason we do the show. Yeah, the reason we do the show. Yeah. Anyways, so we're going to start. We're going to start with Midnight by Arlene Gottfried. And okay. I'm going to ask you, why did you bring this book? 
Um, okay, so I have a, can I tell a personal anecdote yes. before I? Um, yes. We encourage So um, Arlene Gottfried has been like one of my favorite photographers for a long time. And I also am a huge comedy fanatic and I also love her brother, Gilbert Gottfried. Mm. <laughs> and it was kind of a strange thing to discover that they were brother and sister. But um, also I did a, a talk at the Alice Austin House Museum in Staten Island at the invitation of Paul Moakley from Time Magazine. And I actually co-curated an evening. Of course, it's around Halloween because that seems to be the time that people are most interested in my work. But um, <laughs> Paul invited me to help curate this evening at the museum where he's the care. He's he's not only um, the deputy photo director at Time, but he's also the caretaker of the Alice Austin House Museum in Staten Island, which is an amazing place. Um, they still have her darkroom intact. She was a Victorian era photographer. She was a woman. Um, she was a lesbian. She was like a, a rule breaker in a lot of ways. And so doing this event, there's a woman sitting in the front row and it was, you know, it was Halloween and she had bunny ears and she's just, you know, looking very intensely while I'm talking. And after the talk, Paul goes, oh, did you meet Arlene? And it was Arlene Godfried. And I totally had like a fan moment where I was like, oh, Arlene, I speak your name. <laughs> no, I kind of lost my cool. I was like, can't believe you're here. This is like, you know, for me, it was a huge experience. But um, I think on the way back, Paul then drove me to the ferry after the event. And we talked about this book, Midnight. And I said... I think it's one of the craziest books I've ever seen. And he says, I think it's the one of the best photo books ever. And we talked about why. And the reason why is it's images of a man who goes by the name Midnight that Arlene has known for, she still photographs, but this book spans 20 something years, but she's probably known him over 30. And it's published by Powerhouse Books. And it's him kind of, He's has uh, schizophrenia and it's him at various stages of his disease. But if you just look at it as a work of art, he looks like a completely different person in every picture. And in every picture, you have to guess what their relationship is. And I think over time, in reality, that changed and was very fluid. But as a work of art... I'm so jealous of this book because it doesn't need words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just need to know what it is. It just needs an introduction and it just takes you there. And it's so raw and so intense and so real. And it honors him, but it also doesn't shy away from the realities of his life. Mm -hmm. And it's loving, but it's tough. Mm -hmm. And so this is a book that I know I could never make as a photographer, but it's one of the reasons I love photography because photography can also communicate this way. There's no blurry pictures. It's very clear. It's, But it's also photography being like you realize how important time is in relation to photographs. And I don't know, this book just like kills me. Yeah, I think it was interesting that you said like not when you mentioned it that it's supposed to be ambiguous of what her relationship is with it. I guess and I didn't read any of the text, you know, I'm just browsing through the photos and I kind of right away assumed I was like 
this guy was he he must have been a lover he must have been something but then uh, you know you go through it and it's kind of you know the relationship does change you know um, and he seems to change in age yeah like even though you know he's he looks younger mm-hmm, 10 years ahead mm-hmm. and so you can see the progression of his disease and mm-hmm. it talks about his disease mm-hmm. in a way that you can't talk about with words mm-hmm. yeah and it's also I mean to me, Anytime you have that kind of access to a subject and he's there right there with her, right? You know what I mean? Is I don't feel like in the pictures that, you know, he's, he's welcomed her into his life and he kind of, you get that sense. I like the sense when the subject is okay being in the photographs and it's like they want to be in the photographs and you kind of have that line of, you know, sometimes he's right there and he's posing, but other times he's kind of like, Oh, it's it's time for the photograph, and you can kind of see those little moments where he's like in between of like, mm-hmm. am I gonna pose or am I kind of like I, this crazy woman like get away from me with your camera, you know? And I think like having that like fluidity in the pictures to me is what really kind of resonated of like it creates that tension between her and him. Yeah, it's a collaboration. It's an artistic collaboration, mm-hmm. and. Or, you know, I mean, like it's a collaboration in in many ways, not mm-hmm. not just artistic, but also to the fact that, you know, there's some very raw. I mean, we were joking about the the na- there's a lot of naked right. uh, photos in this, mm-hmm. but they're not disrespectful. They no. feel very appropriate and very real. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. And there is never for a moment where you question her intention. No, 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 no. And I just feel like this is such a, it's just a rare piece of photographic beauty. But yeah, the fact that she is gay, that she is gazing at, there is that. There is a sexual gaze to it. Like who, like that's what brings or a, a lot of Or loving gaze yeah. too, or yeah. also, I don't know how to help you gaze. There's, mm-hmm. there's so many gazes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's... The very candid kind of I don't of understand like, you gaze, yeah. that you're a stranger to me gaze. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. all those gazes... And that's what Paul said to, well, and Paul, Paul was actually saying too about his transformative power or mm-hmm. abilities in this. And like, then I, yeah, like I was kind of contemplating like the question of, of, uh, what was the, the, the interplay and, right, right, right. but it all goes together in such like a strange strange way. Yeah, I mean it's a beautiful it's a beautiful story about him. I mean it's a beautiful complex kind of story. And I think also too like you never go away from that book not questioning that he has suffered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she talks about that a little there's a very short text in the beginning but that's all it needs. Mm-hmm. How how long did she photograph him do you know? That book I think spans 20 something years but wow. she's still photographing him. Wow. That's what Paul told me but she did not tell me. But also, I too, I'm like, I'm kind of like her fan stalker. So, <laughs> <laughs> nice, <laughs> so nice. you know, I, so I haven't asked her myself. Yeah. I'm just still in awe of her. Well, let's go from one to the next one. This one is called Casa Susana, and it's edited by Michael Hurst and Robert Swope. And I'll let you kind of take another powerhouse books. Um, we'll turn this one over to you again. What's, uh, why did you bring this? And give us a little bit. The background's quite Okay, so um, this book, Casa Susana, is um, it's a collection of, it's not clear if they were transgendered or transsexual men to women, but there are men who went to a camp upstate um, together in order to be able to interact as women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've seen the show Transparent, yep. there's an episode that actually brings it to life in a very exactly, real way. Exactly. But these images are from the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. and maybe early 70s. Uh, they were bought by a collector on the street. It was somebody's personal archive. Mm-hmm. And the reason I brought this book is because this is another book that I could never create. Mm-hmm. This is a book that the intimacy and level of um, closeness closeness yeah. and revelation mm-hmm. and and uh, celebration I think too I mean yeah. there is celebration like, you can see, like, there, but yeah. vulnerability mm-hmm. is something I think it would be impossible to capture unless you were part of this mm-hmm. in a really true way and I think as mm-hmm. documentarians or people trying to document things you always try to be that but right. you're always other and here there is no wall there's no filter mm-hmm. it's so beautiful it's somebody knowing that if anybody else saw this, they would not be acting the same way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it, like, the, the vulnerability of this book just kills me. Mm-hmm. Well, I felt to feel like this, you kind of recognize how important photography is outside of our world of art and whatever. It's like these photographs mean, yes. you feel like that it means so much to them that they could have just these pictures and the memory of it, just like that power of it that it just, to me, like it just breathes through that book. It's like this, the power of photography in that other aspect of just preserving, you know, their, yeah, their like memory, their history. Yeah, like I can't be the real me in my life, but I can record the real me yeah. that I am in private exactly. and have it and hold on to it. And maybe and somehow the photograph really is more truthful than the reality. You know what I mean? Like this represents a truer version of me. Whereas a lot of times, you know, photography people will say it doesn't really represent, you know, the truth. It's like, oh, that's not really me. I don't look like that or whatever. You don't, you didn't capture me. But in this, it feels like, you know, it just comes through. Yeah. So this book kills me. And I know that like, it's something, it's not even something to aspire to. It's something Mm -hmm. that as a lover of the medium that, I just look at and, and go, oh, the medium also can give you this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, it hits on like the, you know, the art, digging into archives. And did you say that it was kind of found by accident or how did they find I it? I think somebody stumbled upon the collection mm-hmm. at a street sale. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't read the, the intro text mm-hmm. in a long time, but uh, I, I think that's what happened. Somebody found it as a whole and mm-hmm. like it was so this was somebody's personal collection of their time and their experience mm-hmm. like found together. Yeah, I think it's great. This one really I think is is something. When did it come out? Uh, I'm not even sure. I don't know. <laughs> It'll don't all know. be in the show notes somewhere. Yeah. Anytime we forget, we're like, oh, we don't know, we'll put it all in there. No, I think, it, yeah, even as a, as a book, the sequencing all comes through, like, really, really well. It's a beautiful book. Cafe it's Susanna. a heartbreaking you book. You should buy it, people. I might buy it. I should wish I could buy all these books. <laughs> How can we make that happen? The, the Brian Formal's Book Club. <laughs> you get 10 books a month for a dollar. No, someone should <laughs> send them to me, please. Send us the books. So we're, now we're going to go, we're kind of going... And this was interesting. I just watched the, you had the video. And the, where was the video from? It was from the, the Midnight. What was it the the Midnight Archive the Midnight is Archive. a series that uh, my other, pro- the museum mm. and other projects that I uh, 
am associated with. It's a mm. television series, mm-hmm. like or not television. No, it's a YouTube series. It's a YouTube, well, a web <laughs> series, however you want to call series, it. Sorry, but in that one, that so in that in that little, it was like five minutes segment. You were talking about, and we were going back to the uh, spiritualism, and you were talking about, again to the history of kind of like the medium, and the, so this one you have the perfect medium, photography, and the occult. Right. So in I think earlier I talked about this hidden history mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that ended up inspiring me. And the spiritualist introduced me to this history. Uh, but then the Met in 2005 did a really wonderful photography show of all this, mm-hmm. um, you know, all, the, all these vintage images that show how people were trying to probe the medium for what we could know about the invisible. Mm-hmm. And the show was, it, it was kind of, it was the year that I moved to New York that it like, it was that the show actually happened. So I felt like, Oh my God, I'm finally going to see these pictures in, <laughs> you know, in person. Mm-hmm. But I knew about this history because the spiritualist told me, but it's unfortunately a forgotten, it's been written out of the photo history books mm-hmm. and I I talked about that earlier yeah, but yeah, this yeah. is this is really the best catalog. Yeah. Hmm. And the texts are very interesting and I really respect the curators for not discounting their religious associations mm-hmm. with these images. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very respectful piece. Well, I really I like that. I mean, I think it's 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 interesting that like you say like how the, I don't know if you want to call it the canon or the history or however that is, do you feel like somehow the internet and, you know, this hyper-connected kind of world is opening up, bringing back some of these lost histories? I mean, do you think it's less, that the canon is less solid and solidified than it has been in the past? And you think it's because of these open networks and people like yourself, you discover this and like other photographers are discovering, you know, other photographers that were kind of overlooked. I mean, again, you know, we talked about a little bit is like how many female photographers have been kind of written out of the history as well too, you know, and you know, people of color, that all these different types of photography from different places, from different experiences. It seems to be to me, I see it's like, it's, you see this momentum coming um, where it's going to be like, yes, it's it's much broader than, it, than you really thought was you thought it was. Well, you know? I think, thankfully, and I mean this in the most loving way, we have the collectors mm-hmm. who have been have been on mm-hmm. their like totally obsessive pursuits for numbers of years. That's the only reason archives like this exist. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think the internet and now like they have ways to get out there, but I think there were always like a mm. small number of people who realized what they were looking at. Mm-hmm. And I also think vernacular photography has been discounted mm-hmm. until now. You need the space of time. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of this is seen as vernacular, but mm-hmm. in actuality, it wasn't vernacular. Mm-hmm. It was very serious people were playing with the media. Mm-hmm we're playing with the photographic process in this way too, meaning like, how can we probe the invisible? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, and the funny thing is a lot of this work predates the x-ray. So what happened Mm -hmm. is that photography happened and it was very mysterious. And you can imagine what a, like, what a, like what a shift that must've been Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. be able to see reality like that. But Mm -hmm. also 
germ theory was discovered, mm-hmm. electricity was harnessed, um, invisible communication was happening with the telegraph mm-hmm. and, and eventually mm-hmm. and the telephone. And mm-hmm. I mean, people's worldviews were being destroyed. Like right, right. there's all this invisible agency around us. Mm-hmm. So people were taking photography very seriously yeah. as a way to look at the invisible. And then the x-ray is discovered, which mm-hmm. shows you the interior of the body <laughs> yeah. with yeah. photography. Yeah. So then that actually spurred mm-hmm. this experimentation forward, mm-hmm. which yeah, for sure. it makes a lot of intellectual sense. Yeah. So for this to be written out as like something silly mm-hmm. is really just it's wrong. It's ignorant. It's kind of ignorant. I think and one thing that I think this will tie into that is like there's always, and I guess this narrative coming out of Silicon Valley, it's like all this disruptive technology and it's revolutionary changing other things. It's like actually, if you look at what it's doing, it's really just enhancing a lot of the revolutionary things from 150 years ago or whatever. It's not really, you know, breaking through in a, in a new way. It's like, you're, oh, we have different ways to communicate and like, you know, different processes can be much quicker, but it's not like harnessing electricity. You know what I mean? It's not like the first automobile. You know what I mean? Right. Like that stuff where again, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, everything completely like changes in terms of like people's reality. I don't think, you know, so for, you know, to people to, to dismiss that and dismiss the seriousness and like think like a new dating app or a new way to like talk to each other on your phone is some sort of like revolutionary thing is kind of silly in its own way, I think, you know? Yeah, but I mean, we but we have had mm-hmm. like, if I think about my life, Okay, so I didn't get an email account until after I graduated college. Seriously. I mean, you know, I'm 40. Right. So, and also I had to relearn photography. Mm -hmm. Because it's digital. Because I was trained in a dark room. So there's a lot of shifts Mm -hmm. for sure Mm -hmm. in the way that information travels. Mm -hmm. But this, I think, the shift... um, you know, in the Victorian era with like how the world actually was operating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know, I can't measure, but I mean, I, I just feel like that was. Yeah, I don't think we can. That was yeah. m- like incredibly unsettling. <laughs> yeah, I can't really perceive. To us, it's, yeah, it's such a, I don't think we'll ever know. It's, you know, one of those things, but. It was a, it was a time of hope in putting a lot of faith in technology and all mm-hmm. these new technologies that were appearing and you had the World's Fair in Chicago in like 1898. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But then it was all kind of squashed during World War One, right. when technology was used to kill. Mm-hmm. But it is such an interesting time in history and they have the show The Nick. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Yeah, it's really, yeah, yeah. really good. Yeah. Very much relates to the book. <laughs> the more it's <laughs> or, you know, the 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 thought of medicine mm-hmm. and how it's changed and how what was once seen as medicine is now seen as something different, whether mm-hmm. it be like mm-hmm. objects like the anatomical Venus, which at one time was supposed to be for study. And now it's mm-hmm. just this very bizarre piece of mm-hmm. art that leeches. Know. So you're referencing <laughs> what we're referencing is the morbid, the morbid anatomy anthology. Yes. And this, you have a spread in this book, correct? I have, yeah, I have a section. You have a section in it. Yeah. So what's the gist of this book? What's the... Um, 
Or is it self-explanatory? So, no, so the Morbid yeah. Anatomy Museum is on 3rd and 7th in Brooklyn. It's actually mm-hmm. a physical space now, but it mm-hmm. was inspired by the blog of Joanna Ebenstein, which mm-hmm. originally tackled like the line between art and art and medicine and death mm-hmm. and culture. Mm-hmm. So this liminal space where what was once seen as medicine is now seen as, you know, these objects were once scientific and now they're... You could you could see them as art or mm-hmm. some sort of beautiful thing, which they, but they don't really fit in the art world necessarily. Mm-hmm. Like they're the liminal yeah. objects, mm-hmm. collectors' items, mm-hmm. right? And death and culture, and how like everybody's going to die, but nobody wants to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And death has been kind of scrubbed and removed from our daily lives, mm-hmm. where in other generations, like you had, you know, mm-hmm. you saw death all the time. It was very normal. Now it's like. A complete surprise when somebody dies, or, yeah. or like people have not. Just recently, my husband and I went to um, a wake, which I was raised Catholic, so I've been to a lot of wakes, and mm-hmm. he's never actually seen a dead body like physically. And so we're very removed from that reality, which is like a very natural part of life. Mm-hmm. So that's how the blog started. And then it began to expand to topics that kind of fall through the cracks of scholarship topics that nobody wants to talk about mm-hmm. or things that don't fit in boxes. Mm-hmm. And I do a, a lecture series there and I try to do provocative talks mm-hmm. um, about similar topics. Mm-hmm. I'm hosting something about shamanism mm-hmm. in April. And, um, pro- Is there a website? Yes, oh, there's, there's a website, mor- morbidanatomymuseum.org. <laughs> it's a great place. Well, there's something wanted, for everybody. So, I know everyone kind of was waiting for this, maybe <laughs> from my little <laughs> teaser. We're gonna talk about Michael Jackson. Okay, <laughs> I hope the listeners stay with us. Oh, I think they are going to <laughs> stay with us. Someone, and I'm not even. I don't know. I'm not even gonna try to explain this. But you, um, is it, am I going to say, has some sort of obsession with the Michael Jackson's death and afterlife? and Or oh, let's, let's take it over. What's going on with Michael Jackson's spirit? What were you going to say about? <laughs> I was just going to mention that I'm the only person here who's actually been to the lecture you've given on it. And it's something I think about now every time I see one of his music videos. Thank you. Or, you I know. take that as a huge compliment <laughs> because I think – it's really difficult to make people think about Michael Jackson in a different way because we have such like strong or personal experiences of him because he's so present in our culture, like no matter, no matter what your age is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started my Michael Jackson project because I've been photographing a lot of mediums who do mm-hmm. – they do rituals that I would consider, they're spiritualist rituals, but I would also consider them forms of outsider performance art mm-hmm. where they sit in dark rooms, they use music, they use lights, and they try to invoke spirits and try to invoke an experience. And some of these experiences are incredibly hypnotic and some are very silly mm-hmm. and some are very compelling and it's very different from clairvoyant mediumship mm-hmm. which is what you would see on like the Long Island medium it's it's ritualistic and it's ancient you know mm-hmm. it's been per, thing 
situations like this have been played out in very many forms throughout almost every culture. But anyway, getting back to Michael Jackson. These mediums were telling me, we're talking to Michael Jackson. (laughs) He's coming to the seance. He's leaving papers. You know, some of them were telling me. Was this like shortly after his death or? um, I didn't really get wind of it until a few years. I did the, yes, after his death, this starts in our culture Mm -hmm. and I'll explain, but I didn't really get wind of it until 2013. Also, you know, mediums are giving me spirit paintings of Michael. They're telling me what Michael says. And I'm thinking, what is going on with this Michael Jackson stuff? And there is, you know, there's a lot of celebrities that appear in some of these seances. And and you'll have uh, mediums fight. No, Louis Armstrong only comes to my seance. (laughs) No, he only comes to mine. You know, I mean, it's, there's this very absurd, but like also incredibly interesting thing that's going on with them. And I really see them as, yes, they are practicing their religion, but they're also doing this very bizarre, incredible form of performance art that's Mm -hmm. very outsider and creates very strange um, experiences Mm -hmm. for the people who participate. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm going long, but uh, <laughs> no reason. So, uh, so I started thinking about Michael Jackson, and I started talking to a man who wrote a book called *The Trickster and the Paranormal*. Mm-hmm. And in that book, he talks a lot about opposites and about how the space between opposites is the space of myth and mystery and ritual. And anthropologists have studied this. It's called the liminal space. Mm-hmm. And if you think about Michael Jackson. He's black, white, he's male, female, he's child, adult. He's good, bad. He's, um, he blurs the line between awake and asleep um, in a way that is complicated to go into, but, uh, and life and death. Oh, and man, animal Mm. is one of my favorite binaries he blurs, Mm. like through his relationships with animals and particularly bubbles. And- So I go into all of this, and when you see it all together, it's compelling. Mm-hmm. Our, our, you know, like our modern eyes look at it like he's just a crazy person. Mm-hmm. But if you look at him through the symbolism of myth and ritual and history, he makes a hell of a lot of sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you can't put him in any box. And mm-hmm. also, his ambi- or his sexuality is completely ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's. You know, is he gay? Is he straight? Is he asexual? Is Mm. he a pedophile? Mm. There are real questions in between all of those spaces. And so you can't put Michael Jackson into any box. But the thing I became most fascinated with is his uh, afterlife, which, you know, so I'm dealing with mediums who are saying they're talking to Michael Jackson. Okay, so then I start researching. All the media mediums are talking about Michael Jackson. Okay, then you find out CNN, Larry King is talking about Michael Jackson. But then I even found a news report about uh, Michael Jackson impregnating somebody while she slept watching a video of Thriller. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the funniest headlines I've ever seen in my Mm -hmm. life. But deeper than that, I found instances where his ghost was playing into reality in a very real way. Mm -hmm. Like uh, in his 
AG, like his family sued AEG mm-hmm. for his death, mm-hmm. like wrongful death. And Lionel Richie's ex-wife gets up there and says, Michael told me that he accidentally killed himself. And the judge lets this testimony stand. So essentially his ghost is testifying. <laughs> then you find the guy who does the Cirque du Soleil um, Las Vegas show based on his music says, Michael co-directs with me. We talk about this. He's told me what to do. <laughs> like Then his brothers say, we talk to him all the time. He consults on our oh. music. So it starts to get like, you know, like it's playing out in a real way. Mm-hmm. And then you see the escape thing, which I don't know if you followed, mm-hmm. but he had a posthumous album called Escape put out by Epic Records. Mm-hmm. And you have Timbaland, who is the executive producer, saying, Michael Jackson came to me in a disembodied voice and told me what to do on the record. And I took him dead serious. <laughs> and I'm not crazy. This is in Billboard magazine. I'm also only pulling from, trust me, I could pull from wacky sources, but I am pulling from mainstream media. <laughs> that there is a reality to Michael now still that plays out in the world in a very real way. <laughs> and so then they hologram him. You know, he had a post-death performance Mm -hmm. and I mean they conjured him up like and they all talk about like how they want to conjure him up and then they actually did and then you have Howard Stern on his radio show saying Michael Jackson is the hardest working dead man in show business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And headlines like Jacko back from the dead and yeah. all of this. And then, but also you also have Michael, one of the binaries is reality fantasy, very mm-hmm. much realized throughout his life he's creating a story for the ages. Mm-hmm. And he kind of primed us all to, to use his image in this way and wanted it. And he wanted to live forever. And he Mm -hmm. talks about it in his life. He also talks about the dream state and how he wrote no songs himself. Like they Mm -hmm. all downloaded into his head as a dream, in a dream or a relaxed state. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm kind of giving my whole lecture. I I don't know. know. Is it it okay? What was the song he wrote when he was driving and it hit him? Okay, so this is my interpretation of the mythological saga of Michael Jackson and Billie Jean. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So the first hint that I had that Billie Jean was like a meaningful thing mm-hmm. was I was watching this um, ABC News piece uh, on the anniversary of his death. And they asked his costumers, like, first they said, how would you describe Michael Jackson's style? Mm-hmm. And like these two guys like pipe up and go, Liberace goes to war. Like that, that's how that's how you wanted to be seen. And then the interviewer asks, "Did you bury him with his glove? Did he wear the white glove in the coffin? Like, how did you decide what that outfit would be?" And they both immediately respond, "Say no, we would never put him in the glove in his coffin because the glove is Billie Jean, and he's moved on from that." So then I started researching. Okay, what does Bill? What does Billie Jean mean? So. When Michael wrote the song Billie Jean, he was driving, he was driving himself, his Rolls Royce, down a highway in Los Angeles. And the song came to him. Like, because, you know, driving is like a relaxed state. You know, he used to say that, or he said very eloquently in very many ways that he would get his music and his inspiration in dream state or relaxed state. So he gets Billie Jean. And his car starts on fire. (laughs) 
and he doesn't realize it's burning. And this is in Moonwalker. Mm. This is his description of it. And somebody has to pull him over and say, you're burning, your, your car's burning, and puts, puts out the fire. So he has Billie Jean. And he mm. describes like the period between having the song and writing it down like as painful. Mm-hmm. And so like he, and he would transcribe the songs like all in acapella. Like he would mm-hmm. sing, he didn't play instruments, so he would like mm-hmm. sing every part. Mm-hmm. So he gets Billie Jean does Thriller, and then he does the 25th anniversary for Motown like live concert, mm-hmm. and he decides to do the song Billie Jean. And it's kind of unheard of because it's not a Motown song, but mm-hmm. they're like, okay, we'll let you do this. And, mm-hmm. and it's the first time he does the moonwalk. It's the first time anybody notices that he wears one white glove because he's been doing it for a long time. Mm-hmm. But like 50 million people watched it. And he said the night before the performance, he didn't know what to do. And so he went into his kitchen and he talked to the song Billie Jean. And he said, what should I do? And he decided to do the moonwalk, which he was kind of inspired by like neighborhood kids or like he talks like skateboarders. Like he kind of picked it up. Mm-hmm. So he does the moonwalk wears the white glove and does Billie Jean. And like he says, and I think it's well documented too, that like everything about his life changed. That's when he Mm -hmm. became Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. Like before that performance, he was, you know, a pop star, but then he became Michael Jackson, Mm -hmm. which is like a whole other thing. So then he's in that stratosphere for only eight months. And then he does Billie Jean again for a Pepsi commercial. And a weird synchronicity happens. He starts on fire again and doesn't know it, but it's his Mm -hmm, head. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But he walks down an entire flight of stairs on fire (sighs) and he doesn't know he's on fire and like they have to stop him. And it was like a crazy injury. Mm -hmm. And, and it was during like a recording of Billie Jean. So like, and that, then that starts basically starts his demise by all accounts, even his own. Like he was never the same after that. That's when the drugs started. That's when the surgeries started. That's when like everything that brought him to the end kind of began. Mm -hmm. So if you think about myth and symbolism and all of those things, it's kind of like a crazy way to look at him. And I do believe like we're kind of watching a myth in real time. Like Mm -hmm. he lives in a very bizarre way in all of our minds, but sure, also sure. like in the culture. Mm-hmm. And so that's basically my time. I basically yeah. gave no, my time. That's very good. <laughs> yeah. very good. No. Yeah. I, so what, what I, this is a real project. You're taking this and you're going to do. Yeah, but like, I, like I do it with imagery mm-hmm. that like the pictures from his life are so compelling and he's mm-hmm. so many people at once that. Mm-hmm. It's like he's like a flickering light, yeah. like the, flickering between these opposites. Mm-hmm. And so I bring it to my photography in a way that I'm photo editing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yes. Of course. But you want to see it as like some type of book. You're going to coalesce this into. Yeah. Like, I, and I don't know if everybody, I, when I can explain it fully, uh-huh. I feel like people really see what I'm getting at. Yeah, of course. It's right but there. But I guess I just did it without images. So. <laughs> no, I hope you got somebody listen to it, like give her a book deal for crying out loud. Like make this happen. It's the best PowerPoint. Well, I think, well, I mean, it might be the yeah. best ending of an LPV show. I think we've had. So, I mean. But that's basically in a nutshell, yeah. my Michael Jackson talk, but there's also a lot oh, of great. very bizarre well, people um, are going to have to follow you to get the rest. You don't yes, have to give it away. Yes, Yeah, I just, yeah, I gave a lot of it away, but it's also like I left out a lot, too. Yeah. Well, holy smokes. 
<laughs> I think that is a pretty great way to to end the show. Shannon, Woo. thank you. Wow. I mean, yeah. uh, play Billy Jean. Yeah, Billy. Yeah. Do I have Do I have it on Spotify? Oh Maybe God, I do. Can I do it? Oh, wait a minute. Give me a second. I hope nothing starts on fire. That's how I am my lecture. Know? I play the actual performance, <laughs> right. and you see it differently because you know that's the moment that changes everything. <laughs> right, right, right. Which right. is heavy. It's video. It's not photography. It's video, but it's a time warp. It's it's seeing that moment. Moment is really insane. So there are pictures of him with his head on fire. Yeah, that's insane. I, you can actually download. People sold everything about him, so you can find everything about him. That you can actually see the wound. It was like a gaping wound this big. He had to have his whole scalp sewn back together. Jeez. Thanks again for joining us. You can go behind the scenes of this episode, see the work of our guests, and the photos we discussed by visiting our Tumblr and lpvshow.com. If you'd like to support the production of the show, this year we are offering a subscription for $20. As a subscriber, you will get exclusive access to our weekly email newsletter, which will contain a bonus conversation about some of the interesting stories we find on the web. Also, at the end of the year, we'll be raffling off three awesome photo books exclusively to our subscribers. We appreciate your support and hope you continue to enjoy the show. If you have any questions, please feel free to send them to info at lpvshow.com or connect with us on Twitter at lpvshow. The LPV Show is executive produced by Brian Formals and Tom Starkweather. Our score is by Tom Starkweather, who also mixes the show. Special thanks to Eddie Volanti and Brett A. Davis. Thanks for listening.